Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Changing the Game in Consumer Industries, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in a digital world, to run, grow, connect, and transform, to engage customers and patients across their journey. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game changers, you are absolutely positively in the right place. Let's see what the buzz is today. Here's an interesting quote I found from Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L-M-D, in health.usnews.com. Listen up. This is a new era of medicine. For the first time, we can digitize humans. Wow, that's an interesting statement. So what are we talking about? Let's talk about a reality check for healthcare providers, payers, and producers, the three Ps. You, I'm talking to all of you, need to reduce costs. You need to improve patient safety. You need to boost the quality of care. And since you're in business, you need to gain and keep market share. But how are you going to do it? Well, let's look at new technology. Some of them are actually not that new. We still consider them very innovative. How about blockchain? How about connected health? How about personalized medicine, up-and-coming part of science? How about health wearables? We've been having them, using them, talking about them for a couple of years now. And then, of course, we bring in AI, artificial intelligence, and ML, machine learning. So many options. What should you do first? Well, we're going to help you out with our extraordinary panel here today. And by the way, the topic is Life Sciences Innovation Trends to Watch in 2018. How's that? So don't go anywhere for the next hour. Let me tell you who my esteemed panelists are, and then we'll get started with the quotes they sent me to open the show. First up, we're welcoming back Jack Schmidt, Director in the Life Science Industry Practice at Deloitte. He was formerly at SAP and on the show a couple of years ago. Joining him are two newcomers. We have Chris Wally, W-H-A-L-L-E-Y, Industry Compliance Lead for AWS, that's Amazon Web Services Partner Network. Welcome to Chris. And then we are joined also by Raj Subramanyam, Senior Director at SAP America. So gentlemen, happy to have you on. And let's get started with the quote Jack Smith, Jack Smith, Jack Schmidt, hello Jack Schmidt, has sent me from Steve Jobs. This is a a lovely quote and let me get started. Uh, Of course, everybody knows Steve Jobs, Steve and Paul Jobs, 1955, uh, Left us on October 5th, 2011, coincidentally, the day we launched Game Changers Radio. He was an American entrepreneur, business magnate, inventor, industrial designer, the chairman and CEO and co-founder of Apple. I'll leave it at that. That's been one of my mantras, focus and simplicity. Simple can be harder than complex. I'm just going to use that part of the quote. Jack Schmidt, how are you? Doing great, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Oh, delighted. Nice to reconnect with you. So talk to me about this quote. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking about a very complex industry, certainly in the news all the time, because we want better, don't we, Jack? We want to feel better. We want to not pay so much for it. So how does this quote apply, please? Well, I think it's a, an interesting quote because Apple's, you know, as you know, if you've kind of kept up on the press, has been really making a lot of moves in the healthcare industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most recently, they've uh, they've announced some uh, some new capabilities for their Apple Watch around their medical uh, medical EML, EHR electronic health records will be available on the watch. So you know this is powerful information. You talked about bas- basically digitizing 
humans, if you can carry your medical information with you, it should improve uh, you know, the, the quality of care you receive. It should improve the efficiency of the, of the healthcare system. And most importantly, it can help serve to help keep you healthy by using some things like wellness apps, for example, embedded in Apple Watches. So Apple's a big player in this market, and they've been uh, steadily and, and consistently kind of increasing the, the, uh, the value, I think, of their, of their services to the, to the healthcare space. So, so tell me something. Digitizing humans um, is—is this something that that the average? I'm going to use that word very advisedly. Is this something that that the average consumer, you and me, and everybody, are we aware of this? And we sit down and say, "Wow, my doctor is digitizing me. Look at this." Is this something that people know about, or is this breaking news as people listen today? I think people know about this. It's really about sequencing your your genomic information, your DNA. We've done this a couple, you know, uh, there was a a large project a number of years ago that took many, many years to complete. But today, Monty, you know, um, 23andMe, uh, uh, Ancestry.com, they're out there all over the press, especially before the holidays, and people are buying these kits and they can look at their ancestry, for example, or they can look at uh, genetic uh, information to talk about markers for specific uh, disease states. So, yeah, I think people understand that this is available. And I think, you know, you and I may not be digitized today, but maybe uh, maybe in a few years, every child born will be digitized from the minute they're born until, you know, their whole lifespan. That's a wow. <laughs> okay. Very, very interesting. We're not talking about implanting chips in their wrists either at birth. Well, we won't go there right now, but maybe who knows. Thank you, Jack. Welcome back. Delighted to have you on the panel. And now let's turn to Chris Wally. And he is at AWS, Amazon Web Services Partner Network. And Chris has sent us a quote. We've heard this quote from time to time, but I think it's very important on our show today. Chris is quoting Albert Einstein. You all know 1879. Come on. We've had so many Einstein quotes on Game Changers, you could probably all recite his bio to me, uh, 1879 to 1955, German-born theoretical physicist, theory of relativity, the world's most famous equation, E equals MC square, and what about that hair? Let's leave that one alone. 1921 Nobel Prize in physics for his services to theoretical physics, physics especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect. And here is the quote, imagination is more important than knowledge. Imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. Chris Wally, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? Hey, Bonnie. Good morning. I'm doing, I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on the show. We're delighted. Talk to me. Interesting quote. How, how much, where are we talking knowledge, imagination, and health services? Well, Life science. This is Oh, no, this has been a quote that has been inspirational to me for a long time, uh, and especially throughout my career in healthcare. And I think healthcare and life sciences are, are, they're one of those industries where we want our people to be credentialized. We want them to have a lot of knowledge and experience um, so that, you know, if they're treating us as a physician, we feel safe in their ability to, to understand what's going on with our bodies, or if they're chemists in a lab at a, at a company, um, you know, the, the background that they have in chemistry and lab techniques can, can let them make studies repeatable so that they have good results. Um, but I think what we're looking at now with the digital transformation in healthcare is we're kind of in a new world where there isn't any model um, to really go off of. And, and it takes more than just knowledge to, to drive this innovation forward. And so there's a lot of creativity and imagination that's, that's coming out of 
place, unexpected places. Um, as a, as a compliance person, you know, you might not think uh, that that's been my career. My whole time is really focusing on how people follow regulations and standards, which sounds kind of boring to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Sounds like, oh boy, you must do a lot of reading. But there's actually when when you're applying old world regulations and standards to new technologies and techniques, there actually is a lot of creativity and interpretation that needs to happen. So um, that was kind of the inspiration for my quote here. I appreciate that. And and Chris, I don't know if you watched the show, The Good Doctor on TV. Have you seen that about the young surgeon who's on the high end of the autistic spectrum? Yes? I have not yet, but I've heard good things about it. Take a look. He he has a photographic memory of everything he learned in med school, and you often see a superimposed over the screen while a patient is being opened up in the operating room, and they're the quandary of this brilliant team of surgeons. What should we do? Where is the bleeding coming from? Why is the pulse going down? Why is the heart rate stopping? Etc. Etc. And and he will all of a sudden they'll just impose what he sees and his not only the fact based he's able to pull in into his special brain but the imagination of what could be going on where else can we look and I would like to think that that's something that in in brilliant diagnosticians that that imagination is let's think outside the box can we we safely say that's a good thing in medicine sometimes. You yeah, think? absolutely. Yeah, sometimes it's the it's the only thing that's left. So, um, yes. and, and it helps drive us forward. Yes, watch the show. I think you'll appreciate it. Not you don't have to even watch the first one. Just pick up any of them on demand. I think you'll appreciate it. And thank you, Chris. Glad you're well. And now let's talk to Raj Subramanyam, a senior director of SAP America. And Raj has brought us a wonderful quote from Wayne Gretzky, still alive and well, born in 1961, Canadian former professional ice hockey player and former head coach. He only played 20 seasons in the NHL National Hockey League for four different teams, nicknamed the Great One called the greatest hockey player ever. He holds 61 NHL records, 40 regular season records. Talk about imagination. 15 playoff records and six all-star records. Oh, my. Here's the quote. A good hockey player plays where the puck is. A great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. Raj, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? I'm doing well, too, Bonnie. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad everybody is well and healthy. So talk to me. Are you a big hockey fan? Do you follow Wayne Gretzky? Talk to me, Raj. Actually, I'm not. In fact, uh, I'm a cricket player. I used to play cricket. Ah. Uh, In fact, I don't even understand ice hockey as much, and thanks for filling me in on the stats from uh, Wayne Gretzky's (laughs) career. I don't don't know if uh, Wayne realized the gravity of this statement when he made. Uh, He may have been referring just to the game. But I believe this goes far more than a game. Um, In fact, in an age where uh, there's a lot of disruption coming at us thick and fast, with its ability to impact not only people, but also corporations, industries, and even countries to some extent, uh, it is very important for us to see where the puck is going to be and position ourselves there. I think this uh, this is the thin edge of the wedge, and it has a lot of implications. Uh, happy to describe more on this. 
Thank you very much, Raj. Uh, very interesting. I think this goes along with what we've been talking about in our topic today, of course, and I have to do a shout-out to my colleague at SAP, Michelle Schuf, who put together this wonderful panel and, and this topic uh, as far as imagination versus knowledge, as far as thinking outside the box. Steve Jobs, quote from Jack Smith. Jack, Jack, I don't know why I want to call you Jack Smith. I must know a Jack Smith in my past. Jack Schmidt, forgive me. Simpler can be harder than complex. Keeping it simple, being imaginative, thinking outside the box, and skating to where the puck is going to be. I think we're all going in that same direction. Raj, thank you. Great quote. Really appreciate it. And um, let's see now, Jack Schmidt. You know what time of the show this is. It's a little bit up close and personal. We'd love to know where you are today. We don't need the number on your door or the Google coordinates to the roof of your house or office. Not that personal. We'd love to know what city or what part of the world you're in and what are you drinking if it makes you happy. If not, what would you rather be drinking? Jack Schmidt, talk to me. Bonnie, I'm calling in today from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where I make my home. I was traveling all week and came back late last night, so I'm happy to be in my home office and comfortable today. And, uh, you know, it's still morning here, so I'm drinking some coffee. But, you know, I, I, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, what yeah. I'd really like to be drinking, not right now, but maybe this weekend, is I, I was on a plane from California a couple months ago, and I sat down next to a person, and, and we got to talking during the conversation. And turns out she's the founder of a, of a micro distillery in St. Michael's, Maryland, called Lion Ooh. Distilling Company. And she was eating, reading a book called Leaders Eat Last, so I was talking to her about that a little bit. But uh, she began to tell me her story, and it was so interesting. And now I, I have to plan a sailing trip with a group of my friends down to, uh, to Sam Michaels. I'll call them at my crew, I guess. And as you, uh, as you might guess, we're going to stop in Lion Distilling and maybe have ourselves some of the spirits, which are focused around rums and whiskeys. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll even pretend we're pirates for a couple hours. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Is this in Maryland, perhaps? Lion, L-Y-O-N, Distilling Company? It is. It's in St. Michael's. I found it. I found it. Lion Distilling Company, proud to be a micro-craft distillery on Maryland's East Shore, dedicated to transforming raw ingredients into splendid. Oh, Jack, when was the last time you heard the word splendid? Honestly, is that a great word? Splendid liquor, step-by-step in ultra-small batches, rum and whiskey. Lion Distilling Company is a founding member of the Maryland Distillers Guild. Jamie Winden serves as president. I got the right one, yes? Mm. Yes, you do. They're closed right now. You'll have to wait. (laughs) I'm thinking the weekend, Bonnie. (laughs) I think so. Well, we want some pictures from your sailing trip. Thank you very much. And you're in Amish country in Lancaster, and that's also Hershey country, correct? That's correct. Okay. How's Hershey doing? Still around? Still still sending out those chocolate scents? It's it's an amazing company. It's an amazing company town, you know, where the streetlights are shaped like Hershey Kisses. That gives you a clue (laughs) as to how they're doing. I mean, they're certainly, the business is changing, but they're still uh, very strong. And and Milton Hershey's very, uh, his legacy is very influential in, in, uh, in the area for sure. And we're still happy to have those candy, those chocolate kisses. Absolutely. I didn't know the streetlights were shaped like kisses. I haven't been there in decades and decades, but if I ever get back up there to the Northeast, maybe that'll be a destination. Thank you, Jack. And now, Chris Wally, same questions for you. Where are you calling from today? And what would you love to be drinking if it's not in your cup right now? Uh, Nice. I'll have what Jack's having. Um, (laughs) We all will. 
Yeah, I'm I'm calling from uh, Seattle, snowy Seattle, Washington today. Um, I'm actually I got back late last night from travel as well, so I am currently in my home office, uh, which is in various stages of construction. Um, I've been uh, building out my basement. So one of the things I like to do when I'm not uh, geeking out with computers um, uh, is do home improvement projects. So I've been doing a lot of the work myself and uh, enjoying the conversation and surveying what will be uh, a very nice home office when it's done. Very, very for, nice. Yes. For my Go beverage. I am going, for your I, beverage. Every morning I look forward to, uh, on my commute into work, I stop by this little coffee shop. Uh, you know, Seattle, we, we're big coffee drinkers. I think I heard a stat, like we drink the most coffee per, cap, coffee per capita of any city in the nation. They've actually measured it in the groundwater, the caffeine. Um, so I, I got this little spot that I go to where they make the best cappuccino. It's got magical foam. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, after our discussion here today. Okay. Well, there is a website on bustle.com called the uh, the uh, article is the 10 most coffee-obsessed cities in the U.S. are. Do you want to know what they are? Let's see if I can get to the list quickly enough. The list is not here. Okay. Well, we'll have to do that another time. I'm assuming that Seattle is probably at the top of the list. By the way, a, a distant and late relative of mine designed the Space Needle. Did you know that, Chris? Oh, no, I did not. That's great, though. That's, uh, I get to see that every day on my way to work. He designed it on the back of a cocktail napkin as a dare. Could you put along a tall tower with a revolving restaurant? Yes, I can. He formed the corporation that built it, and it is disputed on Wikipedia, but my family, my the Graham family says yes, they know who did it, and so there's some lore there. I don't often talk about that, but there's a little, little bit of history there. You could look it up. Thank you very much, Chris, and uh, drink up, and now Raj Subramanyam at SAP Raj. Same questions for you. Where are you calling from? And what are you drinking? If it's great, if not, what would you rather be drinking? I'm calling from King of Russia, Pennsylvania, Bonnie. This has been my home since '98, and for this show, I'm sitting here alone at home, having uh, pulled the uh, cord off the landline so that I'm undisturbed here. And this morning, um, literally, uh, to answer the question, I woke up to my coffee, and I want to take you to a part of southern India. So I'm an American but a Tamil from South India. And where I come from, we take our coffee very seriously. So it's the filter coffee. We also call it kapi. So I just want to give you a little bit of the story on that. Yes. Uh, when it is in the first degree, uh, growing up, uh, my mother used to add more water and then, you know, we would get repeats. So the coffee would get a little weaker, but we had to have enough to, you know, go around. But when you get it in the first degree, mixed with piping hot milk, a touch of foam, and light on sugar, uh, that's enough to experience life. And that's my daily uh, drink, <laughs> not just for, wake up, for waking up, but even the joy of uh, you know, being alive. Over the last uh, six to seven years, now I'm going into figurative mode. Over the last six to seven years, I, I've been subscribing to Seth Godin's blog post. I'm sure a lot of you know. I do, Seth too. Godin. I do, too, yeah. every day. Go ahead. Yes, and for love someone it. someone who's learning the ropes on marketing, uh, I love his blogs. I wake up to it every day. He's almost become my morning coffee. So I've wow, that, not only that's, blog today, my coffee as well. 
Raj, isn't that interesting? Seth Godin being your morning coffee. I like that because I get his daily briefs, daily blogs. And what's interesting to me, anybody aspiring to become a blogger, you don't have to read, don't have to write five to seven hundred words a day. Sometimes he writes, or his team, I'm guessing, writes four to five sentences and they leave you thinking, what exactly does that mean? How does that impact me? What's the thought behind that? Hmm. And you actually ponder it, don't you, Raj? Some days you look at it and you say, hmm, that was a, a lot of interesting thought packed into a very few number of words. Do you get the same impression? Oh, ab- absolutely. And that is the kind of taste that a filter coffee leaves you with as the set blog post. I love it. <laughs> Very good. I think you're a poet here. I appreciate that. Thank you all. And by the way, King of Prussia, isn't that near, um, isn't that near where, um, who was our other panelist in Pennsylvania? Uh, that, Jack, right? Jack? That's right. Yep. Yeah, Raj and I are not that, too far apart. That's yeah, what that's I thought. Far away. Yeah, little, I, I wasn't really good at geography, but I remember those places being nearby. Thank you, gentlemen. And by the way, in case you're wondering, Jack already knows, there's no surprise, they do not let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days, and you already know why. I'm just happy to be here. SAP Game Changers Radio is my caffeine kick, Raj. That's what gets me going in the morning, and that's why I'm happy to be here. So all I drink is a cool, clear mug of cool, clear water. With a, yeah, Today I have a yellow straw because we haven't seen very much sunshine here. Oh, yes, it's warm in Durham. North Carolina. It's warm. It's in the high 70s, almost tipping up to 80 some days, but it's been cloudy and kind of icky out for the past couple of days. So sunshine is at a premium for some reason. About four weeks ago, we had eight inches of snow. Being a dutiful New Yorker, I borrowed a shovel and I shoveled and it was backbreaking work. And 48 hours later, the snow melted. Little did I know the mantra here is if you don't like the weather in Durham, wait 20 minutes or 24 hours, and it'll be something else. And they were right. What do I know? So we're here on Changing the Game in Consumer Industries Radio. Very interesting panel. We're talking about health. Come on, that's something that impacts everybody. Life sciences, innovation, trends to watch. We're going to take a quick break and come back with Jack Schmidt at Deloitte, Chris Wally at AWS Partners, and Raj Subramanyam at SAP. And we're going to do a deep dive into what are the new technologies on the horizon, on the landscape, what's actually here already? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it machine learning? Is it blockchain? What in the world does blockchain have to do with life sciences? Connected health, personalized medicine, health wearables, they're all there for the taking, for the grabbing, for the grasping. What is your company going to do? Are you a provider, a payer, a producer? You want to listen up. A lot more great information coming. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. I promise we'll be back. Aaron out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Power your digital transformation. Innovate with new technologies. Integrate them into your business and scale seamlessly as your company grows. Changing the game in consumer industries brings you insights from the movers and shakers who are making this happen. We'll delve into global business challenges and cutting-edge technologies to help you digitally transform for an improved focus on the consumer and the patient. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top consumer industry and technology strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how the digital economy is shaping the future of consumer industries. Changing the Game in Consumer Industries, presented by SAP. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Changing the Game in Consumer Industries, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Changing the Game in Consumer Industries. Here we are. We're back with Jack Schmidt at Deloitte, Chris Wally at AWS Amazon Web Services Partner Network, and Raj Subramanyam at SAP. I'm still Bonnie D. Graham and plan to be for the rest of the show after that all bets are off. We're talking about life sciences innovations, trends to watch in 2018. Let's do a little reality check here with Jack Schmidt. I'm looking at some notes from Jack before the show. This is a very provocative statement I'm going to read from Jack and then he'll kick it off and we'll go around the table. Jack says, it practically takes a medical degree for a patient to find the quote-unquote right clinical trial where they are medically qualified and believe the therapy and study design will achieve the desired results in addressing their disease state. That's a really packed statement. Jack, you want to unpack it for us, please? Well, I think, uh, Bonnie, yeah, I'm happy. There was an, um, an article published in Wired magazine at the end of January, and the author noted that right now she found 19,816 clinical trials open. And there was a prediction made that 18,000 of them will never get filled and, and come to conclusion. So right there, it talks about the amount of complexity uh, in terms of the number of clinical trials. I also went to something called uh, a, a national registry called uh, clinicaltrials.gov, and that national registry lists 266,419 research studies in all 50 states and 203 countries around the world. Wow. So you can imagine if you, uh, if you are not feeling well, if you've been uh, diagnosed with a disease like cancer, for example, and you want to get the latest and greatest treatment and try to find out how you can take advantage of, of life-saving therapies, maybe around immuno-oncology, for example, maybe that, that really invoke you know, some of the things we've talked about, your genomic profile and, mm-hmm. uh, and some really strong clinical results associated with strong outcomes. How do you find that? It, it, it's almost impossible to do that. And, and the Wired article was really about a, a, a gentleman who had worked on uh, kayak.com around airfares and taking that same kind of search technology to clinical trials. How can we make it easier for patients and healthcare providers to really understand the changing and complex landscape so that patients can actually benefit from this information that, you know, that frankly changes every day? So... Um, you know, in, in, in you. summary, that's really a, a really the key here. I think is helping patients get access to information, timely information, so they can get better. Because you know, the clock is ticking, right? And and Jack, before we move on and get your co-panelists to chime in on this very interesting topic, I'd love for you to to bring in some of these innovations into how can they help. We're talking blockchain, connected health, wearables, AI, ML, machine learning. Uh, any of these going to help that? How will they help the well, patient find that right trial? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's where kind of AI and machine learning come in place. I mean, if you're a patient being able to search across the, uh, you know, the key factors of the clinical trials, you know, you, you know the trials are, look for your age, your sex, 
They might look for comorbidities that you have, prior treatments. All these things kind of narrow down the, 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 uh, the ability to participate in a clinical trial. So, you know, you can't search through 19,000. You can't no. search through 9,000. You probably can't search through 900 clinical trials, especially when you're feel, you know, suffering and not feeling well. So AI and machine learning and these kind, of, these kind of technologies, breakthrough technologies, can make this simpler for you as a patient or a caregiver to try to access information that, uh, that can make a difference. And, and just as a patient, you know, today you have to be the biggest advocate for your health because there's no way that a healthcare provider can keep up with the amount of information coming at them every week, every month in terms of the number of trials and the breakthrough therapies and all these kind of things. So the same kind of technology can be really used and utilized to help healthcare providers stay abreast of the latest and greatest. And, and that's where kind of the power of this, uh, these technologies will come into play and, and change the game, make a difference for people. Thank you, Jack. Let's get Chris Wally at AWS Partner Network in on this. Chris, what do you think? Agree or disagree? Oh, uh, I absolutely agree. I, I actually have a little bit of a personal story related to this. Um, so, mm-hmm. so professionally in my background, I've, I've worked at pharma companies doing clinical research and clinical trials, uh, both domestically in the U.S. and internationally. But uh, in my family, uh, one of the big uh, leading people in my life uh, up until he passed away a few years ago was my grandfather. Um, towards the end of his life, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and with esophageal mm-hmm. cancer. And so we were, you know, basically there was no treatments for um, either of those things uh, in, in the stage that he was at. And so we had to um, kind of look at all the different aspects of his quality of life and, how, you know, how much life expectancy is left and actually be, be his advocate in going to find those clinical trials. So I was actually the one who, who did a lot of the listing in terms of finding out what he was eligible for based on his medical history and, and what was available out there. So I can firsthand experience totally agree with Jack that this is a very challenging uh, environment. And even as a professional in healthcare, I found it difficult. I, I can't imagine if my grandfather didn't have someone like that in his, in his life, like what, you know, how would he have navigated that? I, I just can't imagine that he would have been able uh, to do that. We actually found some uh, clinical trials for him through the Veterans Administration uh, mm-hmm. for all Alzheimer's and actually, you know, you know, he, he didn't get totally cured from it. It wasn't um, a phase three study. It was more of a safety mm-hmm. study. He did receive benefit from it, um, but it was just a really great experience, you know, having my personal life and professional life intersect like that. Now at AWS, um, and, and just with the companies that I get to interact with, I can absolutely see uh, technologies like telemedicine and mobile technology are absolutely changing how patients and um, clinical trial uh, researchers interact and find each other. So uh, there's a lot of innovation in that space right now. Um, and, and I think all the things Jack mentioned, AI and, and using more of the algorithms to do the matching instead of mm-hmm. humans having to read thousands and thousands of pages, um, we'll, we'll definitely see trends up in that direction. Thank you for sharing that very, very compassionate and interesting story, uh, personal story. Thank you, Chris. You kind of brought me down here. That's it. I remember back in the day having to research in the earlier days of the Internet, way before anything we're talking about was available, researching uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, and somebody in my family was experiencing those types of symptoms, a very young person. And I remember going through scholarly papers from Yale Med that I could find any research 
research I could find looking for a practitioner, trying to find out who would take the blood samples? How would we get them to this, this physician or this, this uh, department and, and actually being able to get that done? But I remember how somebody else had uh, needed some surgery for tinnitus, which turned out to be a, a, a little tumor on the brainstem and that worked out okay but she ended up losing hearing in one ear but we had to do the research manually Chris we had to go out and look everywhere there was there were no algorithms there were no any of what we're talking about these this is back in the I guess in the 80s 90s 70s so I uh, yeah Yep, you understand what I'm saying. Let me bring Raj into this conversation. Raj Subramanyam at SAP. Raj, thoughts, please, on what we're discussing here. Love to get your thoughts. Well, uh, there was an interesting statistic that uh, Jack provided on the uh, clinical trial uh, capacity, if you will. Uh, I want to flip this and look at it from the life science company uh, perspective. There is a lot of benefit all around, not only to the clinical trial patient, but also to life science companies, also to the end patients once the product uh, becomes mainstream, gets approval, and is commercialized, and also to society at large to progressing clinical trials faster. Uh, One of the studies that I uh, came across mentioned that um, about 10% of the clinical trial sites fail to enroll even a single subject. That is a lot of uh, utility, facility, clinical trial uh, supplies, and staff that is wasted when you don't have, uh, you know, even a single patient to run the trial on. This is where we need to not only engage those kind of patients, you know, who, to Jack's point, need a medical degree to understand what they're signing up for, uh, but also to to get them to understand what's in this, make them aware of what kind of trials are running, so that we can get a product to, to market faster. We get a product to market faster there could be at least one patient that is sitting there that uh, you know actually needs that uh, product to survive. That's the benefit that uh, you know these companies bring. And with today's technology of uh, you know internet marketing engaging these kind of uh, subjects, uh, we can we can leverage technology. You absolutely need technology to engage a clinical trial patient at a unit size of one to progress these trials faster. Some life science companies are in the rare and serious disease segment. So there the population is very small. So they have, and even, although their trial size is shorter, smaller, they also have a a smaller population to work off of. So their uh, task is complex. Then you look at other uh, mainstream uh, diseases, uh, treatment for, say, Alzheimer's or uh, uh, diabetes, etc. Here, the, the, the clinical trial size is larger, they also need a large number of subjects to prove that the, that the drug works. Regardless, you need, uh, you need the support of technology to engage these patients to progress faster. Thank you, Raj. Great points you brought up. Jack, uh, let me turn this around to you, go around the table to you. You started this conversation. Uh, any thoughts here? You know, Bonnie, it's, just, it's a complex uh, area for sure. Uh, technologies mm-hmm. are emerging Every day, you learn. You can learn something new. And just this week, I saw two articles, and I, I tweeted both of them out uh, around use of AI. Um, one of them that I can recall was around analyzing CT scans, so image looking at an image. 
and then that that uh, this AI uh, application would actually notify a healthcare provider via their smartphone when they found an issue, uh, something that needed to be looked at more closely. You know, so so there's a just a tremendous opportunity going forward here to to utilize technology. There's uh, still a lot of hype, but uh, but we're starting to see a lot of practical applications come to market. And I'm, uh, I'm so encouraged uh, that the benefits for patients are, are beginning to really uh, accelerate. And, um, and uh, as society as a whole, we'll see you know, improved outcomes, better medical care, and, uh, and probably all at, uh, hopefully at some point, lower cost as well. Thank you. Oh, we didn't get to that one yet. Yes, lower cost. We all know what it takes for, uh, yes, healthcare spiraling. Don't have to say any more right now, but that's not the point of our conversation today. Chris Wally at AWS. I'm looking at some notes here uh, talking about technology and healthcare. Let me read a little bit, please, and then ask you to expand it. You say, now we always get into the question of privacy. We all know that we are inadvertently in many cases putting all of our personal information out there. It's accessible. It's grabbable by people, by systems, by organizations. Oh, I didn't know they knew about me. Well, you put this down, you put that down. What do you think? So welcome to this brave new world. But here, let's talk about consent. That's uh, one of the parts of permission. That's one of the parts of privacy. So Chris Wally says, quote, electronic consent systems in enabled in part by blockchain technologies, will become more prevalent. This will allow patients and consumers to digitally control and audit the permissions associated with their electronic personal information. Tell me how, Chris. This sounds good. Is it good? I, I, absolutely. Um, I, I, one of the places I used to work at um, had an IRB, an institutional review board, um, which was responsible for enforcing the informed consent process at a, at a research institution. And so I got really familiar with that process. Um, uh, the, in the past, a lot of this has been administered with paper. And, and so patients were signing, you know, signing permission to share their data with the researcher and embedded in those paper documents sometimes were rules around what those researchers could do with the data. Maybe they could share it with another researcher for the same disease, or maybe they could share it with a researcher at their same institution. Um, but those rules were not really standardized in a way, um, and they were locked away in a paper file somewhere. So after the patient signed it, um, you know, the tribal knowledge kind of carried things forward. We're now seeing the ability to, t- to turn those rules into uh, and from just paper rules written uh, written down to actual um, uh, programmable rules that can be implemented in computer code, and then those rules can be attached to the data and travel with the data as it as it moves through um, the the rules and pathways where it's allowed to go, and then blocking it where it's not allowed to go based on what the patient uh, signed up for. And I think regulations. Um, it's a combination of technology like blockchain, um, which kind of gives you this distributed uh, ledger, uh, being able to tell where things are uh, from uh, with a high degree of reliability. Um, but also there's other types of transformations um, in terms of like regulations like GDPR in Europe. So there's new rules coming out in May um, that talk mm-hmm. about what companies can do with personal information. And it wasn't specific targeted at healthcare, but what I can kind of see is the pattern of permission giving for any kind of company, whether it's financial data with credit card transactions or health data or wearable data coming off of your Apple device, um, all of those kind of that model of, you know, individuals 
asserting ownership and control over their data and using technology to be able to tell where that data is and who's seen it. Um, th- that's absolutely possible today. And I think um, the, the regulatory environment combined with the technology and innovation is really going to drive that forward even further than it already has. Thank you very much, Raj. We'd love to get your thoughts on what Chris just shared with us. Raj? I mean, if there is any area where blockchain can be very powerful and much sooner, um, then it has to be in the information space as opposed to a physical object tracking. So I agree with Chris that uh, this kind of information, securing that, making sure that uh, the records are immutable, I think blockchain can be a great um, use for that. But uh, very interestingly, I remembered uh, one of Sheryl Sandberg's uh, statements some years ago, uh, which helps us track the evolution of how we humans are sharing information. If you remember the early days of chat, uh, there used to be a term called IRC, the Internet Relay Chat. Mm-hmm. That time to get on the chat, everyone would use a screen name, which is to mask their name. People, we were very wary of sharing our names online. So we had yep. all kinds of screen names. But fast forward like 10 years ago, you know, fast forward 10 years later, now we put all sorts of information outside, including our social security numbers, even as login to some site. And in the days of hacking, you know, with, uh, with security breaches around, I don't know, Yahoo, Equifax, etc. I think we humans have gotten a lot bolder and are very risky in today's age but I think it'll be much secure once blockchain is uh, commonplace. I think we would go from a, an age of masking our information with the low security to absolutely brazen no security today, well, not no, much lower security. Then I think once we get blockchain commonplace, then we'll have uh, much tighter security, almost foolproof. That's how I like to see the progression here. Thank you, Raj. Good points on that. Let's circle around to Jack Schmidt. Jack, thoughts, please. Yeah, uh, Bonnie, I think, um, you know, I used to be really concerned about privacy, but I figured my information's been hacked so much that uh, nothing's really <laughs> private about me anymore. And especially when it comes to my uh, to my healthcare information, you know, uh, it was always a concern, well, gee, if I have a pre-existing condition, will it be covered? But some of the regulations have changed that. And I know that's a little bit in flux. But our, my thinking has evolved to the point where, you know what, anything I can do to, to help people by sharing my information, particularly around healthcare, uh, why wouldn't I be willing to do that? You know, share it in a clinical trial, share it in, a, in patient forums and healthcare forums, wherever I can do that. And to Chris's point, I think, uh, you know, consent management is really an important part of that, uh, of that equation. I think blockchain is a really great te- technology, and I've actually seen uh, some work that we've done at Deloitte around consent management, a, a use case that we've built out, really that manages and tracks that informed consent across multiple sites, across the ecosystem, which is what I think Chris is getting to as well. It's these handoffs in the system and, and where we can use a technology like blockchain to, crack, to simplify that um, uh, and to track that and make those records immutable and secure. Um, I'm all for it, and I think that's uh, certainly the wave of the future. Thank you very much. And let's go back to Chris. Anything you want to add to this, Chris, before I move on to some statements from Raj? We still have time. No, I, yeah, I think this was really, uh, really good um, uh, comments from Raj and Jack, and um, it kind of reminds me of our first topic a little bit, where um, that difficulty in matching patients with trials, oftentimes that leads uh, the life sciences companies to have to expand their reach in looking for patients, and so 
um, going internationally, you know, expanding the scope of where uh, a clinical trial subject could be. Um, that, that also impacts the consent process as well, because each different country has different rules around um, what, what can be in an informed consent. So in, in a way, um, as they were speaking, I was kind of connecting the dots with our different topics here and, and kind of seeing the connectedness of our, of our discussion. Thank you very much. And Raj, I'm looking at your notes, and here's something very provocative here. You've titled this part of your notes, Driven to the Valley. Let me explain. You say most automakers, as in automotive, are setting up shop in Silicon Valley to take advantage of the entrepreneurial and technology-led disruptive ideas generated on a regular basis. That's their DNA. Now you say pharmaceutical companies should follow suit to gain that competitive edge. Let's talk more about this, Raj. Please. The week before Thanksgiving, Bonnie, um, I was in Palo Alto uh, on a tour with a large pharma company that wanted to look at small entrepreneurial ideas, and my role was to bridge that to large pharma. That is when I got a very close look at the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And as I was looking at it, I ran into or, or I read a number of reports. Uh, PwC Money Tree report gives a lot of statistics. Uh, I was surprised to note that the number of investments in startups in Silicon Valley was almost 25,000. Uh, a close second, or the, the second on the list was New York Metro, New York City Metro with about 8,000. That's almost mm-hmm. three-fold increase there. And most of these are, uh, well, the largest category is internet-related. Second largest is mobile and telecommunications. And then the third one is healthcare. And then when I saw that almost every automaker has a presence there, I was thinking, why not pharma? And then I was there with a large pharma company who was trying to understand how this ecosystem breeds new ideas, disruptive ideas, and how can we collaborate with them? Once again, it is seeing around the corner. You know, it is trying to play where the puck is going to be. How can we get wind? of what is going to be the next big thing. Where are the venture capitalists investing money? What are the kind of research that the academia is performing? But there I discovered that the confluence of academia, risk-taking, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are uh, you know, competing against each other, that whole thing, the water that you drink in Silicon Valley has got something to do with it. <laughs> then the presence of um, you know, academic institutions like Stanford, etc., and the presence of venture capitalists has got to do something with it. Now, driven to the valley is a metaphor, of course, could be yes. other areas too, like we know the Cambridge area in Massachusetts is a, is a breeding ground for pharma and biotech startups, things like that. If we take it beyond business, then you know, Cuba for boxers, Kenya for middle distance runners, uh, Pakistan for fast bowlers, etc. There is something to do with certain places. Uh, I believe that pharma companies... Um, taking a cue from this company that I accompanied uh, could do well to take a leaf out of the the automakers and understand what is going on so that they are prepared and they can position themselves to where the fuck, you know, will be. So that's how I uh, thought of this statement. Very nice bringing in the opening quote. I appreciate that, Raj. Nicely done. Let's circle around to Jack Schmidt at Deloitte. Jack, do you agree or disagree that more pharma should move to the Valley or to other hubs of incubations of disruptive thought, design thinking outside the box where where it's in the DNA or the coffee or the water or the bagels or something? What do you think? I, you know, Bonnie, 
Raj is a dear friend of mine, known him for many years, but I probably disagree with this a little bit um, because because I think that I think that our that our industry, the pharma and med tech companies, I happen to think they're the most innovative companies on the planet, and they have a, a higher purpose than almost any other company when it comes to the work they do around helping humans lead healthy, uh, you know, be healthy and, and stay healthy and get healthy when, from disease. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate Roger's point about the, the, you know, the Valley being a, 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 an epicenter of innovation. But we've been innovating in life sciences companies for a long, long time. Uh, just, just haven't always done it in the way that Silicon Valley has done it. <clears throat> now that said, I do think Rod is onto something here. You know, and I've actually read a report recently where, where you know, um, in 2016 there were 100,000 health apps launched. And if you counted the total of health apps in the market at that point, after those 100,000 were launched, there were 259,000 healthcare applications. These are mobile applications on your phone, things like that, for example, right? Only 24% of those healthcare applications had more than 50,000 downloads, right? So I think it's, you know, we, 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 I think when I hear about the, the, the technology, I, I think there's a lot of great ideas, but I think, I think the focus has to be on the transformative ideas that make an impact, that move the needle, and that are actionable. Um, I appreciate Raj's point of view around, you know, in Silicon Valley, nothing is impossible. And oftentimes, you know, we limit our thinking to why we can't, why, why not? We can't do this because. And I don't think Silicon Valley thinks that way. They think it, they don't, that, that never enters people's minds. It, they never say why not. They just say, what's it going to take? So that point I completely agree with. And I think, uh, I, I think uh, the world's moving to a what's it going to take kind of environment. And our industry, as we get younger, um, and the models change. We're embracing technology. We're finding the innovations that make a difference, and it's just going to be more and more exciting going forward, and we're all going to benefit from this the next 10, 20 years for sure. Well, I appreciate the uh, the contrary opinion there very much, Jack, and that's what we look for here is not having everybody spend the entire hour on Game Changers saying, I agree what he said, what she had. I, I, I disagree. I agree a thousand percent. We've had people say they agree violently, and we, we, we don't like violence here on the radio, but I'm happy you, you took another, another position. Chris Wally, I'm going to ask you which side of the fence are you on, pharma to Silicon Valley, pharma where it is. Talk to me, Chris. I'm going to put you in a hot spot here. Okay. Well, I, I, I think I probably tend to fall in uh, Jack's camp a little bit. I've been, um, uh, I've been in the life sciences industry my entire career. I've worked with a lot of uh, innovative companies with new product ideas that um, are hoping to become commercial. Also worked for some technology companies that enable, you know, support uh, those kinds of organizations. So I've seen a little bit of both sides. I think the way I um, kind of, split um, this topic up mentally for me is there's the technology innovation in how operations happen inside life sciences companies. So how do they make their products? How do they discover and invent those things? But then there's actually the product itself. And so I think where a lot of the the value of the technology disruption mindset can come is in the operation side. Um, and I think there are lessons absolutely to be learned out of tech centers like Silicon Valley um, from the operational IT perspective, because I've, you know, having done, you know, a lot of IT in pharma, I can say 
that's probably not where the leading edge of innovation is happening, um, or it hasn't been traditionally. And now where we've got all these different technologies available to help companies run their business better, to help them do predictive maintenance on manufacturing equipment, or how to use in silico uh, studies to do, to do testing in a computer that they couldn't do as fast in an animal model. Um, those kinds of things, I think, are absolutely where the cross-pollination happens. But on the product side, you know, there's starting to be things like digital companions to drugs. Um, but I just don't think you can innovate in the same kind of way at the product space um, because, the, uh, you know, the, there's just a different set of parameters, uh, patient safety. You know, that's not something that Silicon Valley typically has to deal with. I grant you in the automaker industry, that's totally different. You know, obviously, uh, consumer safety is critical there. Uh, but I, I'd say in your general tech company um, kind of innovation center like Silicon Valley, say, patient safety isn't something that's on top of mind. So I would, I would probably um, draw some clear boundaries around where that cross-pollination happens. Thank you. And you know what? We are already in the time zone for our crystal ball prediction, so I'm not going to have a chance to come back to Raj for a double rebuttal on what your colleague said, but this makes for a really good conversation, good discussion. Thank you, gentlemen. Jack Schmidt, I'm pointing at you with my virtual moderator pointer here. Let's take a look in the crystal ball. I'm not even going to say let's look at 2020. I'll let you pick the future time. I can give you exactly 60 seconds. Use them well. Jack Schmidt, what will change about life sciences innovation Anything or everything we've discussed, it's all yours. Jack, go. Bonnie, I think everything has changed around life science innovation. I think uh, data is, uh, is, we have a term, data is the new currency of life sciences innovation. So we've talked about, you know, everything from sequencing a genome to a precision and personalized medicine to using technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning to speed diagnostics. The convergence of all these technologies is going to come together at some point. And I don't think, I, I, I've even moved away from using the word transformation because I think it's really, truly evolutionary. They're, they're evolving, they're being added to the base, and it's going to get better and better and better. Uh, even to the fact, you know, we've heard of CRISPR gene editing technologies. And, uh, and I think we'll, we'll, we're going to just accelerate this innovation and accelerate benefits. And I do want to make one comment. There's going to be a big uh, push around ethics associated with much of this change going forward as well. It's going to be part of the conversation and, and a very important yeah. part of the conversation going forward as well, I think. Thank you very much, Jack. Chris Wally, I save 60 seconds for you. Predictions, go. Okay, I, um, I'm thinking that technology, although it will be used more, there, there will be a lot more use of it. I think it'll become more invisible as things like conversational UI and uh, real world evidence kind of collecting data as we go about our lives and then using that data um, that we're not even aware is being generated to help do things like our diagnoses and our treatments. Um, so I think there will be more use of it, but uh, it'll be more transparent um, in, in, in its use. Um, I also agree. I think the ethics and the and the ability to ensure things like data privacy in a global research setting, um, we're, we're going to see huge transformation there. Um, it, it's extremely difficult right now to run an international study of any type um, due to all these rules. And I think technology is going to enable those rules to be uh, more seamlessly implemented. Thank you. I like seamlessly implemented. Good way to end that part. And Raj Subramanyam, I save 60 seconds for you. Go ahead, Raj. Yeah, I think there'll be a, a lot of changes in manufacturing, um, especially with automation and the uh, IoT, the sensors. Uh, I see the quality control-related sampling and the whole sampling of data, that'll be 
totally changed to the point where sampling may not even be necessary. Uh, from a data perspective, when we have the tools and the high-speed databases to do analysis of a whole population in real time, then why bother with sampling error and just uh, you know studying a small sample when you can deal with the whole population? The quality control sampling part, when machines build at great speed with unerring accuracy, you know, tirelessly, they produce perfect product, then sampling also, uh, quality control-related sampling can go down. And I believe with the proliferation of sensors, once, you know, instead of getting uh, five sensors for $10, if you can get 300 sensors for a dollar, and then you put those into machines, the components themselves, not only the machine, the component would tell you when they need attention. You don't have to or you won't have to schedule preventive maintenance sessions, etc. I think the term sampling and scheduled preventive maintenance will be relegated to the archives. Uh, if not in the next five years, at least in the next decade. So I think we'll see a lot of changes there. Thank you, Raj. We are out of time. I want to thank Jack Schmidt at Deloitte. I will look up Whispering Jack. I already have him, Whispering Jack Smith. That's the origin of Schmidt. Chris Wally at AWS. Raj Subramaniam at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and thank you to Aaron Keller at World Talk Radio, the business channel, our engineer extraordinaire. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt and be healthy when you drive, for goodness sake. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Jack Schmidt, just like Chris Wally, just like Raj Subramaniam. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. That's the end of our live broadcast week, but we've got a lot more coming up for you next week. So have a great day. Go out and be a game changer. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Changing the Game in Consumer Industries, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.